When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode on the Poetry, People, and Things channel. I'm Megan Wildhood, and I'm here with one of my press mates, uh, Emily Hockaday. She is a poet from Queens who writes about ecology, astronomy, and the city landscape alongside more personal subjects. Her first collection, Naming the Ghost, which is the one we will be talking about today, tackles the onset of chronic illness and parenting through grief. Her next full length, In a Body, will be out in October with Harbor Editions. This collection looks at chronic illness through the lens of eco-poetry. Emily is the author of five chapbooks and has had poems in a variety of print and online journals. Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to talk about this collection with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay. So this collection is called Naming the Ghost. Um, it is, it, I read it three times um, and I got something, I got a layer out of it each time. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited to talk about um, just, uh, there were lines I pulled out of each poem. There's um, questions about inspiration and about um, just kind of the process of writing. Uh, it was something that spoke so deeply to me as uh, someone who has uh, had to do various difficult things through the weight of grief. Um, I also want to start just by thanking you for this collection. Um, it's dedicated to your father and your daughter, as you write, who overlapped on this earth for four short months. Um, I overlapped with my grandfather for three short months. Um, and so I didn't understand the, uh, the absolute devastation of grief, grief that must um, my father must have been going through for the first couple years of my life. And just those formative, like right at the beginning, I was three months old when my grandfather died. And I didn't understand him, my father, until I read Naming the Ghost. And um, that just, it really, it really fully hit me what my father must have been experiencing um, when I was an infant. So I just want to start by saying that was the first thing that struck me about this collection was how much it must have. I mean, you're, you and my father are not the same person, but just that window into you're just becoming a parent and then you lose a parent. Um, so yeah, thank you for helping me understand my father a little better. Thank you so much for your close readings of it. And also I'm, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm glad it spoke to you because it's like a very tragic circumstance and I really feel for your dad, yeah. but I am happy that it could give you some insight there. And also I, I do know that like there must be, so many people out there, you know, who yeah. can relate to that. Yeah, totally. And I think that's, this was, um, this, this poetry I think is, my dad likes poetry. So I'm, I'm going to recommend uh, his, recommend this book to you. Cause I think um, he probably, he probably felt 
my lack of understanding because I just I was so young. I never knew him. I didn't know my grandfather. And it was it was super sudden. So um, this was something that I can be like, 37 years later, I finally understand. Uh. <laughs> um, I also really appreciate that you gave really, really strong voice to the worrying over one's own mortality. Um, I, yeah, I made it about 36 years, uh, and that worry before that worry really hit me and it hit me really, really hard last year. It's not like I haven't had people die in my family. All my grandparents are gone, um, to when I was a child, to when I was an adult. Um, and I'm now watching friends lose their parents, but, uh, it, it, like you gave voice to this saturation, uh, of all of life with the sort of anticipatory grief. Um, mm -hmm. and it really, that really helped me feel not alone, um, in this like, Oh, right. Death is a thing <laughs> that will happen to it me. It is. And our, and our society doesn't talk about it right at all. I mean, I think there are other cultures who handle it much better than ours does. And I found it, it's just something that people feel so uncomfortable talking about. I noticed it, after my dad died mm -hmm. that like people were like, Oh, I'm, I'm here for you. But like, and, and they were, they were, I, I don't mean to minimize that. Sure. But it definitely felt like there was like a certain amount of grief, like that was allowed to be spoken about. And then like very clear boundaries of like, that's enough, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and you know, part of, as you see in the book, part of my grief was like turning it inward and like real fear, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. Which I've always been kind of a hypochondriac, so I can't say that it came upon me <laughs> after 36 years, but, like, it became very profound, like, obviously, you know, in the book. Yes. You can tell, but it became very profound after my dad died and once I started, you know, feeling the chronic illness symptoms. Yes, that, I just think, that whole, that, what you just said about people are there for you, people are there for you, and then it's like, time's up. And, you you know, it's not, oh, you should be over it, but it's, you know, we don't really have bandwidth anymore to process grief and I just I that's always struck me as like well sometimes grief doesn't even hit right away though like it's right when my when my grandmother died I it didn't even hit me she was that she was gone until like the next mother's day which was almost three months later and mm. by then all the cards had been read all the flowers had died all the casseroles had been eaten so we just and I think it I think it is because there is this unconscious fear of of a, an awareness of our own mortality and we have no idea what to do with it. So we just push it off. And when mm -hmm. it gets in our face, um, that that's why we don't we don't know what to do. And then for those who experience something that they can't ignore, they're that's they're like, Well, I guess I'm on my own here, this little island where nobody understands. Um so, so I, I want to say, I want to say to readers that naming the ghost is a thing that will help you feel not alone. It, it, I felt understood in my just total awareness of mortality and like all that that comes with, um, in a way that our culture doesn't have words for, doesn't have room for, and doesn't talk about, um, uh, so I know this is a quirky question. I'm going to get this out of the way just because it's so quirky. <laughs> but um, so the cover, you, uh, people who are listening are not going to be able to see this, uh, but it will, it will. we will link to uh, how you can get Naming the Ghost and that you'll be able to see the cover there. Um, but it, it there it's a lot of purple um, on the cover. And then purple kind of shows up uh, throughout the collection. And the only reason I ask is because um, I am a, I'm purple's number one fan. And so I just want to know, um, <laughs> me too. <laughs> yes. So I, is that, can you talk about like, without giving too much away, like, is there, does purple have a, an intentionally special place in the book? Totally accidental. I didn't even notice that I had put purple in there oh until gosh. the cover designer came to me oh. and this cover was like one of the first ones that I saw. Yeah. Um, and she said, um, purple keeps coming up in these poems. And mm. so it led me to this 
you know, cover. And I, it like blindsided me. I was like, wait, what? And then I went through and it was sure enough, purple keeps coming up. It is one of my favorite colors. And obviously I was really feeling it yes. <laughs> when I was writing the poems, but it was not on purpose. <laughs> well, that, that's interesting. That leads me to another question. Um, this, this cover is super, super eye-catching. When I was at the AWP in Seattle um, at our press's table, that one was screaming from like across the hall, even across the room. Um, so it is, it is very stark. Um, but it, I, I, uh, I was noticing too, um, especially like I've reflected this, reflected on this in my own writing, how people ask, oh yeah, what do you, what did you think about this? Or where did you get this in your, in your, this poem or that story? And I'm like, I didn't, did I put that in there? And I had to go back and read it. Um, so do you, do you have that experience a lot where people, uh, they, you know, they get so much out of something, they give you feedback and you didn't consciously put that in your writing. Is that like a common experience or was this may, was this kind of the, one of the first times for you? This was probably the first time where I felt like really surprised by it. Other times, usually I'm like, Oh, I can see that. Yeah. Um, or I, I had some sort of inkling about it, but this was, I, I really had forgotten that I'd even written the word purple anywhere in the manuscript. Oh, I love it. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. Okay. That's great. Um, so you had mentioned, uh, earlier, uh, about how this, um, awareness of your own mortality had kind of turned into, uh, sort of this fear. And I noticed a very interesting and, um, unique connection uh, that I had not heard before ever, but really spoke to me right away in this line from the poem called Unlike My Husband. And the, the line is, a temptation is not always a desire, right? Sometimes it is the darkest fear. And I felt that when I read, I felt it, like when I read that, but I hadn't heard anybody name that connection before. And so I wondered um, if you could talk more about that relationship between temptation and fear because we always think of it as temptation is like a desire we have to resist this thing but mm -hmm. i immediately recognized oh it is about fear as well even though no one's ever said that before that i know so of. what that line is trying to pinpoint like the most relatable way i can say it is probably that feeling that lots of people get when they're like too close to an edge, really high up, mm. that like weird, weird compulsion to like jump, you know, yes. or like, am I giving myself away here? Am I telling on myself? I think that's a universal. There's like this yeah. strange, like desire there, like what would happen, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but specifically for the book, it really became like I wanted out of my life, like at that moment, mm -hmm. because the anxiety was so extremely bad that it was really difficult just to do everyday normal things, mm -hmm. like just to like prepare food, just to eat food, you know, it would like turn to sawdust in my mouth. Um, so there was this like weird desire, just like if, if what's wrong with me is like something horrible and terminal, just like, let it happen. Yeah. You know, just like, let it happen now so that I don't have to keep basically suffering. I it sounds so melodramatic, but it felt very, very dramatic at the time. Sure. I mean, I'm telling you, my amygdala was out of control. Sure. <laughs> very deregulated <laughs> nervous yeah. system going on. <laughs> yeah. And I, I would say that that though, and that that was evident in naming the ghost, but you captured it so well that I think, um, it, and it was it was it was a dramatic a dramatic thing. Anxiety is very dramatic, but it does speak to the experience of anxiety. I think you captured it really well because um, you can you. you can think in your head this is dramatic, this is wrong. There's there's just, there's it's not that bad. Nothing should be wrong. What's wrong with me? And that that doesn't touch the experience of it. You cannot talk yourself out of it. It's not a logical thing. It's, it's very dramatic and it can, it can upend your life. And it totally makes sense that be like, well, if this, if this horrible thing is just going to be horrible, like just, let's just get it over with now. That makes so much sense about, 
there's this, yeah, the, I, and I have had, I've had that experience of standing on a, a very high ledge and just thinking, what would it be like? What would it be like to just jump off? Yeah, um, it's this weird little <laughs> desire that kind of yeah. peeks its head out. <laughs> totally. And it's terrifying, obviously. Yes, but yeah. That, so oh, that's a great way of, of putting that. Um, so there's, speaking of temptation, uh, there's this, um, you, you speak of this in several places in the, in the collection and one place in spe- uh, specifically said from the poem is called the sound of the ghost. And it says, remember, he says, it isn't always easier to disappear. And that one also really, really hit me because it's like, how many times have I, have, have we uh, thought it would just be easier to disappear? Um, I think that is probably somewhat universal as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so what, what, what would you say, like, what tempts us to disappear? And why do we think it'll be easier? I think, again, it kind of um, connected to the last question. Yeah. It's when life suddenly becomes, like, unimaginably difficult, um, which it had for me. Um, and then of course with, with my father, when he was dying, which he died about a year before my chronic illness started. And Mm -hmm. I think like I was having both the chronic, I think the chronic illness triggered some like grief PTSD Mm -hmm. because it, it really happened around the anniversary of my dad's death. So it was like those two events were sort of coinciding. Mm -hmm. Um, but watching him die, like it is easier on the person who's dying, even though the husband is saying like, it's not always easier to disappear. And that's also true. Sometimes it's not. Yeah. Um, but like when it came to death, like I do, I remember my mom, like on, I think my dad's last day on earth, there was something he was like trying to write us a note. He had ALS and he lost the ability to talk. So he was writing a note, like on a whiteboard asking about some, errand or some small thing that like had to be done. And my mom was just like, that's not for you to worry about anymore. Like not in a, like in a very compassionate way. She was just like, you don't need to worry about that. Like we're all here and we're all going to take care of those things, you know? Um, so I think I was sort of writing ironically in a way to myself back in time because it was, death was so much easier on him, you know, than it was for us. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is so, that is so true. It's always easier on the person who gets to disappear, isn't it? Yeah. And it felt so sad to me to even think of it that way. Mm. Um, but also brought me some relief, you know, even though when someone dies of something like unstoppable, like ALS, there's still like weird survivor's guilt where you like go back over every interaction you had with them. Yeah. Over the last couple of weeks, like, did I act weird? Did I say something weird? Yeah. And it kind of relieved some of that survivor's guilt in a way to feel like, you know, like things are easy for him now. It's not, mm. you know, he's not like struggling anymore. Oh, wow. Which, of course, is a cliche, you know, and people right. say it. Right. But it's true. It, it really is, is true. true. Yeah. There's a reason it's a cliche. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So how much distance, the other way to say is how much time was there between this experience, this like totally encapsulating experience? I mean, I really felt encapsulated when I was reading Naming the Ghost. You really um, reproduced that experience very well for the reader. Um, between that, so the uh, the onset of chronic illness symptoms, your father's death, your daughter's birth, all of this, and then the grief that comes with like, oh, my daughter's never going to know my father. That, when that came up in the book, I was like, never even occurred to me that my dad might be sad about that. Oh, hmm. Um, Cause yeah, he was, I think he was also, he was 35 when, or 36, um, when his dad died suddenly. So anyway, how much time between that experience and writing these poems elapsed? Okay. So I'm like, I feel like it's a complicated timeline. Um, Yes. (laughs) So my dad, I'm going to start with his diagnosis because it was like very sudden ALS. 
It was very sudden death for ALS specifically. Okay. Not a sudden death in general. So we got his diagnosis in like January, February. I was already pregnant. My daughter was born in July. And at that point, my father had basically lost the ability to talk, although he could still get around with a walker and stuff. Um, It's Yes, it was very fast fast. from the diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. They wait a little while to give that diagnosis, though, because it's such a bad one. Like, they first called it Parkinson's-ism. They were Mm -hmm. like, it's a Parkinson's-like disease. So, like, he had that diagnosis for a few months before they were like, yeah, it's ALS, unfortunately. Um, So my daughter was born in July, and then my dad died in October. So, like, the dedication says they overlapped for four months, which I selfishly feel, like, grateful that he got to meet her and, you know, she was there like yeah. I was like changing her diaper on his bed, like on the last day of his life, oh. you know, and he was like, she was like grabbing on his finger. And I, I'm glad that like, I got to see that happen. And for me, it felt a little bit like closure. Yeah. Um. So then after he died, it was like almost a full year mm. before I started getting these symptoms and the symptoms started as pain white. So what my diagnosis ultimately was fibromyalgia. Okay which is like pretty benign. I mean, it's, it's a bummer, but it's pretty benign. Like sure. in terms of what I was thinking, cause I was like, sure, I was dying. Right, sure, <laughs> um, so it sure. started, yeah, obviously, obviously. <laughs> started yeah. his pain um, and fatigue. And I felt like, you know, very confused by it and, and like worried. And of course my brain went to like, well, ALS can be genetic. Like, am I going to die of ALS? Like mm. uh, literally a year after my dad, And then I felt like guilty for like making his death about me, you know, (laughs) so many complicated feelings. Yes. Um, (laughs) And then I would say it was probably like two or three months before I started to be like consumed by Mm. the anxiety around my body because fibro is pretty difficult to get a diagnosis for. Mm. It's like a diagnosis of exclusion. So they have to test for everything. You know, I had like pages and pages of tests. The first thing I did was see a neurologist, um, obviously. And then he did tons of tests, blood work. I went to see infectious disease doctor, um, just like a bunch of, a number of specialists. Sure. Finally, a rheumatologist, um, diagnosed me with fibromyalgia. And Mm. at that point it was like, I really needed to hear that diagnosis to like be a sane person. (laughs) Um, and ultimately actually the treatment for fibromyalgia is a SNRI, which also has, um, pain killing side effects and an SNRI is serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So it's also for anxiety. So it was like, Oh, this is the pill I need, um, at this exact moment in my life, you know, and they put me on just like the lowest dose and it helped immediately. And actually, huh. right now, I feel like I shouldn't be like, knock wood. Right now, I'm off it, and I haven't had any bad fibro flares. Um, oh, okay. So that, so the diagnosis and the medication probably came about six months after, like, the real crescendo of anxiety started. So it was only, like, six months of this misery, <laughs> but it felt like a very long time yeah. to be waiting on test results. Every week, there was some test result I was waiting on that I was sure was going to come back you know with some right. horrible and especially message, if like... you had just lost someone to a horrible illness and that is mm-hmm. very fast for ALS that's super yeah. diagnosis to death is less than a year I've I've not heard that and it's, that it's very quick which so... is probably better for my dad you that know is in true, many ways actually. yeah for him but yeah but for us we were kind of expecting you know more yeah more time years actually is usually what it is. And of course it's just like a slow, awful decline Mm -hmm. for years. But, um, so yeah, in some ways, I guess that is better for him that that didn't, that didn't happen that way. But, oh yeah, when you get ALS, you're not thinking you have less than a year. That's no, no. I think it took us all by surprise. Even the day that we saw him, like, I didn't think he was dying. I was in total, I was in total denial. I definitely was like, see you on the weekend when I left, you know, I, I did not expect it, which again, maybe it's better, you know? Sure. I don't know. Yeah. So how long did it take you to write the collection then after? Ah, so I actually wrote it during, which is possibly why it feels like, like you mentioned the encapsulating feeling of it. Like it, I wrote it in it. 
it helped keep me sane a little bit. I mean, it did not help me keep me totally sane because I was not totally sane. Sure. Like I had right. clinical anxiety. Sure, sure. But it helped keep me from like checking into a mental institution, you know? Yeah. So I would write these poems. I do like a poem a day practice pretty frequently. Okay. Um, it's, I like to produce, you know, I like to feel like I'm being productive and I hate editing. So, <laughs> so I was like, I, you know, I love these poem days. You just like write a poem every day and then sort of don't look at it again. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And I started, I don't know if it was January or February, but I was, what I was doing was dictating these poems, these daily poems on my phone. Like when I would drop off or pick up my daughter from daycare. So I'd like have one hand on my iPhone and one hand on the stroller. And I would just like talk to my phone, which definitely gave me a different kind of poem than I was used to writing, which was cool. Um, And one day I just like started talking about this ghost. And then the next day I talked about this ghost again. And then I like think I wrote some other things for a few days, but then I just kept coming back to this ghost. And then like three months later, I had all these ghost poems, you know, and it was like I had accidentally written a collection in like a few months where like my other collections had taken, you know, years. Yeah. Yeah. That really explains uh, the striking difference in these poems. I've, I've not read poems like this. I read a lot of poetry. Um and this, these are distinct. The voice is so distinct in, in every single one of them. And it's, it's actually very, one of the things that's very distinct about this collection that, um, that I'm aware of is the voice in every poem is consistent. It's so consistent. Um, and that's, it's like, it's a narrative, but it's not a linear narrative. And where are we in this? And where's the timeline? And what's happening? And it was like, you get a little bit into the into the collection, and you're like, oh, this is this is the experience. You're you're actually <coughs> taking readers through the experience where there's not a there's no there's no perspective. You're just in it. And I'm like, I don't think I've read I don't think I've read poems like that where there's I mean the perspective is this is what's happening right now. Um, and I I mean I think that that'll that's just going to speak to so many people who have had a lot of experiences, whether they've had a, struggles with mental health, whether they've had chronic illness, whether they've, and they've, you know, we think all of these things, like it shouldn't be a big deal, yet I'm freaking out, yet what do I do? It's, and it's amazing that you wrote them in, in the moment um, and that they're so, that they, they really do capture um, the experience. I mean, obviously one person can never truly know another person's experience, but for me, it's like, Oh, that is exactly, yeah, that, that I, I know, I know and don't know what the ghost is all at once, immediately. It's so, oh, so good. Um, I think um, we're talking, as we're talking about, because um, fibromyalgia, most people know as just like pain, um, just like everything hurts. And uh, so there's an, there's such a fascinating line here from, from the poem, The Ghost Sleeps, it says, Pain's purpose is finite. It would be better for everyone if we could let it go. And that, I don't know, I don't know why, but I felt really validated by that because it's not the same thing as saying, um, you know, well, this is going to make you a better person or everything happens for a reason or all of those really annoying cliches that don't help at all when you're suffering. But it is it is a it's an acknowledgement, a very powerful acknowledgement. Pain's purpose is finite. And it which gives hope like it will end, but you don't have to. Um so what it, now that you have some some sort of distance from this whole experience, what would you say is is pain's purpose or or was in that season of of your life? Well, Sorry. That's okay. Um, when I wrote that line, I think what I was thinking of was the alarm bells that pain mm. are supposed to ring mm-hmm. in your brain to say something's wrong. Yeah. Look at it. And I was feeling at the time like these alarm bells were ringing throughout my whole body, like waking me up at night, mm. really intense, very deep aching. 
and there was nothing wrong. So it was sort of coming from a less like optimistic perspective, that line. And more just like this pain should be telling me something, but it has nothing to say. And that's kind of what fibromyalgia is. I mean, again, it's a collection of symptoms that are not pleasant, (laughs) but pain is, is yeah, the most common, most thought of symptom. Right. And it is not telling your body anything. It's just like misfiring. Right. So it's like if you put your hand on hot stove, pain is telling you take your hand away and then the pain stops because it has done its purpose. Exactly. And here the pain doesn't end, but there's, there's nothing actually wrong. You're not having your hand on a hot stove. You're not twisting your ankle. You're not doing any of that. Yeah. That's that, but that, I mean, that still sort of seems kind of reassuring too. Like, um, I mean, yes, you still, there's still like the pain that the pain is finite, but it's not going away. Um, I think also for like, it's like, oh, maybe because I was thinking of it as when I was like, wow, that's really validating. I was thinking of it as like emotional, like, oh, emotional pains purpose is finite. That means it does end. And here you're kind of talking back to your body, like finite. Why are you still doing this? I've gotten all the Do better, body. Yeah, do better. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely felt that way toward my body, which is only trying to do its dang best. (laughs) do better. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that it would be better for everyone if we could let it go. Yeah. And that's like, that also really, I keep thinking about that line. It's like, if I want to latch onto something that's going to cause me pain, it's like, but the purpose is finite. It's, you're only going to get so much mileage out of that. Exactly. Um, and I was thinking about my family when I said that. Yeah. Like, it would be better for everyone. Like, it just, it affected, you know, my spouse so much. Yeah. He was great. He was great. Sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> Very but, yeah. supportive. Um, yeah. But, like, I can't imagine what it's like to be like, wow, my extremely Satan-seeming wife is suddenly living in the upside down, and I don't know how to reach her. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's I think, something, um, too, because he shows up a lot in, in the collection, and it's um, the sense that I got was that, yeah, it's he's he's very supportive. And also, how hard must this be for, for everybody involved? Um, then also, like, how how does someone who is not experiencing the the anxiety, the grief, the, the chronic symptoms that fibromyalgia has? How how do you respond to something like that? Like what? Because you are powerless to fix it. And it doesn't go away and it doesn't go away. And then there's also the daughter. And um, so I, I felt a lot of compassion <laughs> for your husband mm-hmm. as well. It's just like, wow, this, this whole situation was just, was really terrible. And yet it was the, the words that you gave to it were so, they were so beautiful. Um, I think there's another line here that, um, and this is sort of uh, talking about, um, Cause your, your daughter comes in too. And I just, I love, mm-hmm. I love the ways that childhood shows up in this uh, collection. Um, this poem from, I held this line from the poem. I held the ghost and the look on the baby's face. The more I loved, the less love I needed. I had, I had to read that so many times and I kept going back and forth of like, this could be sarcastic. This could be legit. This could be sarcastic. This could be sincere. And then I was like, maybe it's both. Because it seemed like there was a lot of, when I was reading through, it was like, there's so many layers and it it's all the meanings. Um, but it's such a stark line. Like, it's true. It's sad. It's hopeful all at once. Um, and love plays a very large role if sort of as an undertone in, in this collection. Um, so... Yeah, let, I'd love to talk about about love's role here um, that you have, you know, for your for your spouse, for your daughter, for your father, and that um, how love played a role f- it, for from others to you as well, uh, and how giving is better than receiving. Um, we hear that all the time, and uh, is is that always true? I'm glad you picked that poem out because. I know we're not supposed to have favorites, but it's one of my favorites. Um, I read that one a lot. 
when I promote the book. Um, love was a huge part of this book. Mm. And I think like the stakes of love are what made everything seem so dire and are what makes the speaker, you know, quote marks. Yes. (laughs) I mean, when I, when I announce this book, I definitely say it's like a poetic speculative memoir. You know, I don't beat around the bush. There are some of my poems that it's like not me at all, but like, right. This book is not that. (laughs) Um, It's a very personal book. Yeah. And the love. Yeah. It, it, it gives everything else like, Suddenly there's something they'd be taken away. Not to say that my life didn't have beautiful things in it and wasn't mm-hmm. meaningful before I had a daughter, but <clears throat> suddenly there was this fear that something would happen to me. Mm. She wouldn't remember me. Already she was not she was getting robbed, you know, of my dad, who was awesome and like loved kids and would have been such a good granddad. Like he mm. would have been like a star, really. He he always loved kids. He was super into like hands-on science experiments and stuff. Like he would have been the best at it. The best. Um so already I was feeling like she's getting robbed, you know, not just me. Right. You know, we're all getting robbed. And then it was like when these symptoms came up, now suddenly like what's her life look like without me? And that is really what was haunting me, I would say. Huh, okay, yeah. I love how she, she's my favorite part of the book. Yeah. I feel like she's very like precocious theming and yes. <laughs> naming the ghost. She, yes. I, but I, I feel like babies like really do, you know, cause she was like anywhere between like one and two in mm-hmm. these poems. Um, babies really do like perceive, you know, a lot. Yeah. And, and it is really joyful to just like love another creature and like not expect anything in return. And that's what I wanted. I just wanted to, like, keep being able to love her, you know, and the fear of this health incident and, like, seeing, you know, losing my dad and, like, seeing his absence just, like, made that feel so important. Yes. Yes. Oh, I, yeah, I I know we're not supposed to pick pick favorites either, but, yeah, your daughter, the baby, is... um, probably probably the most I don't know it's it, it's my most favorite part I mean but also this the the really capturing the experience of anxiety and chronic illness is also my favorite I like the baby because it's there's so much it's just there's so much genuine bounciness about babies and mm-hmm. I I loved the juxtaposition of those experiences um, not that like we couldn't have handled it with the, without the bouncy, but I just loved that. It was like, it's like, oh yeah, childhood was like that in a lot of ways, um, mm-hmm. for, for me as well. And, uh, um, and also just the ways that, that loving someone else shapes not just their identity, but your own kind of, you mm-hmm. kind of spoke to that too about, um, what joy it is to just love without expecting anything in return and how that that really changes our identity I think because I've heard this I'm not a parent myself but I've heard my my sister has a a daughter as well and um just how it's like yeah you really don't understand what selfless love is until you're a parent and I think on so many levels that's that's true um but we don't hear about the joy part of that and how it is so joyful um, there was another line that I, that grabbed me about how, how, at least the way I read it was how love, how loving another being really shapes who we are. And it's from the ghost finds my sewing table and it is the baby sees me stretching and throws herself over me. Now I am a stack of creatures, <laughs> ghost baby and me and i i just love i love that image was so strong even though it's like how do you imagine a ghost but it was so like i am a stack of creatures yeah it made me think of who makes up my identity who makes up me um 
and so yeah, just if you if you would talk about like layers of identity. How do we how do we come to know who we are and what role love like we've been talking about plays into that uh creating ourselves stacks of creatures that we are i think i learned a lot about like identity and also like my brain (laughs) during this time like literally like how brain chemistry works and how the lobes do or don't talk to each other Mm -hmm. um and definitely like the different identities of the speaker come through, like what you're noting with the baby throwing herself on the speaker. Like when the speaker is the mother, I feel like she's the least bothered by what's happening because a baby does not care if you're having a nervous breakdown. (laughs) Like a baby does not notice and does not care. And it's really like, it, it was solace for me mm. when I was hanging out with Avery. It was like, this is just playing with the baby time. And those were times where I could just focus almost 100% on that part of my identity and not at all think about what else was going on, wow. you know, all the worry. And, and, and it was like after Avery went to bed or if my spouse was there taking care of her and I had time to like start going off in my like wild fantasies of like what what horrible fatal illness <laughs> I had right, you know right but when I was there with her that those times were like much more peaceful I will say than other times I love um, that I love that so much yeah um, I love that because a lot of times we we hear how we hear that we hear about the demanding parts of motherhood we hear about how isolating it is, how hard it is, how the kids are always crying, how there's always things that are being asked of you, how you're just this 24-7 caregiver and you don't have anything for yourself anymore. And I mean, there, of course, all of that is true. But I also right. love that being being with the baby was solace. I love that. That's so, so much. I think we, I would love to hear more about that in our culture, that there's something beautiful about loving without expecting anything in return and how that actually can be peace. Yeah. I mean, I will say I have the privilege of like having a very feminist spouse who like never ever once expected me to take one iota more of the caregiving than he would take on himself. So that helped it be like a freeing. Sure experience that had solace because like I had so much support. Sure. Yes. And that's, uh, yeah, totally important to name as well. If you're, yeah, if you're doing, if you're parenting alone, if your spouse is um, not available, it can, that's when the, it can feel as a burden. Um, And that's so to be fair to all of those experiences. Um, And I'm, and I'm sure that even um, remembering my own childhood, I'm like, we three kids really gave our mom a run for her money, actually. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, my dad, my dad was there. He he worked from home. He was like probably the one of the original work from home people. And um, so, yeah, there's this is not to diminish the the absolute demands that motherhood is. Um, and also, I just love that this that being with with a baby, with your with your baby could offer solace in it. What was um, uh, like, obviously a, a totally encapsulating. That's just the only word I can think of it. Cause that's how I felt when I was reading this book as well. Um, so yeah, uh, I think to, Oh, this actually ties a few things together. Um, we were talking about um, how, when you were talking about your, everybody's getting robbed with your father's death um, and how your daughter's not going to remember him. Um, and how you're like, but what, maybe she won't remember me what's happening. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a couple of lines that I, I, I was actually going to ask about that very thing. So from forget about the ghost says it may be that my daughter will forget the ghost until one day she's perhaps a mother herself watching her own child feeling something just over her shoulder. And that is, I, what, uh, and there's a, there's a couple of other lines that sort of speak to this too. Um, but if, 
so that, gosh, there's so many things I could say. How has, I'll say it this way, how is the, um, having, having your, your child at this particular time, um, cause it's, it obviously we, you know, you didn't time it so that it would be right, um, right around the time that your, your father was dying, but like how, what is having your own child taught you about like your parents and maybe your childhood? Cause you're sort of, okay. Projecting into the future. What about when my daughter is a mother? But what, what about when you look back at you as a child and like, how has this sort of taught you or changed your perspective about your own, about your own childhood, having, having this child at this time? That's a good question. Um, I feel like I have an answer that's sort of cheating um, because <laughs> I I live with my mom. We live in a two-family house together during the pandemic. I was like, come to New York. Oh, Get okay. a house with us. Um, so I see her all the time and we talk a lot. Okay. Um, and we've talked, we talked a lot like during my little nervous breakdown, as I like to call it. Sure. Um, and she mentioned that there was a period of time when we were all little, there's three of us mm-hmm. where she was going to the doctor constantly. She was like every little thing. I oh. went to the doctor to get it checked out because I felt like these three people are relying on me. And she became worried, you know, about her own mortality and like oh. needing to be around long enough to like raise us up. And, and I like hearing her say that was really validating too, because I was like, this is okay. So this is a universal thing. It doesn't even take like, a weird, unexpected, chronic illness that like <laughs> plagues you and keeps you from sleeping. Right. To, to have these feelings of concern um, around your own health after becoming a parent, because it's true. Like you're, you expect like to be around. Yeah. For, like 18 years or more, hopefully right. many more, but like right. the certain, the prerequisite, like I raised them and I sent them. And my mom, it, it's funny because, like, I never would have guessed that mm. as a kid. Like, I don't have any memory of that oh, wow. at all. You know, I didn't even, you don't really think about, until something happens, you don't really think about your parents' health. Right. As a child. It's like, I mean, as it should be. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want, like, Avery, like, sitting around worrying over my health. But it just showed me that I was very single like in interior focused as a kid as like I said all kids you know usually are um but I had no clue that my mom it didn't occur to me she was going to the doctor more than other times or if she went at all you know yeah and that that just that sort of juxtaposition of when a kid is worried about that what kind of damage it can do like that Mm -hmm. there is something the line feeling something just over her shoulder well if that happens when you're a child I mean I have a um uh, a former partner whose mother died when he was 13 and he was she was diagnosed with cancer when he was 2 so oh wow that feeling of something just over the shoulder i think is something that he probably experienced and couldn't explain i mean you know when you're 2 you don't you don't know you just know something is wrong and mm-hmm. that's not how it should be um so this poem, this now that even dis- discussing this, is I have a lot more compassion for him as well, um, because it, yeah, it's as a kid you are supposed to not be aware of your parents' issues or worried if they're gonna be there the next day or whatever, and that's like that was his whole childhood, right. um, and yeah, there's and it's a very uncertain way to live. Yeah, and then there it causes all these attachment issues, and you know, oh, people just could wink out of existence at any moment, and it's like when you're an adult you can handle that, but. Um, at least a little more. I don't think any of us can really handle death. Um, something totally wrong with death for sure. Um, but yeah, when you're a kid, you're just like, it just so much devastation can come from that. Um, Mm -hmm. there's a line that I pulled out that, uh, we were talking about, uh, the solace that, um, that you were talking about. Uh, I, I understand this line a lot better now and it sits from thank the ghost. And it said, sometimes it is only that little girl who keeps me tethered. And I, I get it so much more. I mean, I felt it and now I get it so much, so much more. Um, because that, yeah, that makes sense that there's, this is just playing with the baby time. Yeah. It was weird. It was like, 
simultaneously, I was like trying to cling to life as hard as I possibly could. But also I felt like I was like floating out in outer space, like out in the asteroid belt, Mm. like so far away from everyone and just like yelling, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) Across this great distance. Yeah. Like an insurmountable distance. So it was weird. It was like, I wanted really to be close, but felt so far out. Totally. Yeah. That, and I felt there was that I, I kept feeling a push pull throughout this collection, too, which is like that doesn't help anxiety at all because there's nowhere to <laughs> land. You're just am I here? Am I there? And yeah, that. So you captured that part very well as as well. Um, oh, my gosh. There's so many more questions I could ask. I'm going to just pick maybe two. I know we're at time here. Um, That's fine. So uh, I mentioned childhood and how I love how childhood shows up in this book. Um, I'm very curious about this particular line that's from The Ghost Has Started Reading, um, which is just an amazing title for a poem. Uh, We find books like I'll Love You Forever and Runaway Bunny open and stacked next to her crib. These are the books I can never get through. Icicles from Childhood that lodged between my ribs and still, in adulthood, haven't melted. I, f- there was, I keep saying this. I felt that. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's good night moon. Like, <laughs> like yeah. it's a simple, it's not, it's just a, it's just a bored book. That's it. And yet I can't, I can't, I can't read it to my niece. I can't, I can't read it oh. at all as an adult. What is, I mean, what is that? Good night moon that? is wild. Good night, nobody. (sighs) Who's nobody? What is happening? Who's supposed to be there? (laughs) Yeah. You're right. It is really haunting, actually. (gasps) It definitely is. How is that a child's book, now that I think about it? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So this frozenness, though, because I really related to that. How, what, where does, where is that, where does that image come from? That felt very, I don't know if it's universal for everybody, but really, like, what, what gets frozen in ch- what and h- how does it get frozen in childhood? And should we thaw those things out at any point? We probably should. Um, I know if I try by reading I'll Love You Forever, I'll just die in a puddle of tears. <laughs> I can't with that book. <laughs> My mom loves that book because to her it's about love, which it is. Yeah. It is about love. It is. Absolutely. It's beautiful. But when I read it as a kid, it was just about one day your parents are going to die and you're going to have to like take care of not have to like, of course, I would want to take care of them. It was just that they were dying is the thing that I could not get over. Yeah. Um, And Runaway Bunny, sister book to Goodnight Moon. Um, Similar themes of like trying to like get away from like I didn't want to get away from my parents. I was not one of those kids like Mm. so like made me so sad to like imagine this mom like chasing after this bunny who kept trying to escape I don't know I think like when I was a kid the feeling of anxiety Mm -hmm. that I had really was like a frozen ice you know I mean I've felt anxiety now so many different ways like (laughs) sure sure I know all the different permutations yes unfortunately (laughs) and it shows up many ways here yes But when I was young, that like very cold sensation was often how I experienced it. And it reminded me of the myth um, of the Snow Queen, Mm. where the child gets like the icicle lodged in them. And it's like it takes this great magic to like bring love back. Wow. To them. So that's that was the reference. Wow. That's a so good. Oh, it's so good. Oh, I want to read this again. I get some Hans Christian Anderson in there. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Oh, so, um, okay. So (laughs) I have to choose between questions. Well, okay. So I, I have just technically one more, but, um, then, well, okay. So I'll say how, how did this writing of this collection, how did, how did it change? How did it change you? Because I felt I felt somewhat of a progression. I mean, it was still a very encapsulating thing, but it did feel like there was some sort of sense of time passing in some way, even if it was kind of a circle right. sometimes. 
Well, I definitely intended there to be a narrative arc. Yeah. With some closure at the yeah. end. Not like not like the most closure, but closure in that I feel like spoiler alert. Um but the last poem references the ghost as like a yeah. passing traveler. Yeah. Um and it's this idea that like maybe maybe you've wrangled your amygdala today. <laughs> but like it's you know it, you might have another crisis. Yes. That's life, you know? Yeah. Like, things happen. Yeah. Crises happen. Um, yeah. And, like, hopefully you'll know what to do. And, I mean, that mm. is something that I've been, that I thought about a lot when I was writing the book and also, like, since getting, like, quote, better, you know. And I, and I say it with quotes, but, like, I am better. My therapist is like, you're good. You don't even need me anymore. I'm like, don't ever say that. <laughs> <laughs> But like she saw me, you know, through a nervous breakdown, and and really the truth is, like I did heal, and mm-hmm. getting the di- getting the diagnosis helped heal me, of course, because like not knowing what's going on with your body, like I mean yeah. that really triggered the whole thing. But like I also needed to heal, like learning how to cope, and mm-hmm. just like there's all sorts of healing that goes on. Yeah. Um, and the idea is that these things might happen again, but hopefully they won't like take the speaker (laughs) so much by surprise, you know, because I think really that there was a lot of shock for me. Like Mm. one, one day and it wasn't like this, it was very gradual, but like it felt to me at the time, one day I had all my sanity and I was totally fine. And the next day I was living in this alternate reality where I was sure I was dying of ALS, even though doctors were telling me I wasn't, Mm. you know? So it's like, and I recognized it even at the time I was like, wow, like logically these test results should make me feel better. Practically they do not. I am still (laughs) panicked, constantly panicked, you know? And, um, it took a lot to like get through that panic. And I, I have to credit my spouse for passing some advice along that he got, which was that, quote, like, your wife feels like someone is chasing her with a knife. She mm. can't meditate her way out of it. Because <laughs> I was trying to do it without medication. I was like, I can get better. I'll just, like, breathing exercise. Right. And, you know, once I get my Mind diagnosis, over matter. Like, everything. Mind over matter. We yeah. fine. Yes, but that's not real. No. <laughs> and my therapist was like, actually, your two lobes don't talk to each other. You can't, like, your amygdala does not, it doesn't, like, respond to logic. Yeah, it doesn't care what you, can't you say. Th- think, you can't think at it. Right. She's like, sometimes you can, like, breathe at it and, like, do really big deep breathing. There's a way to, like, deregulate your nervous system. She's like, but you're in, like, a full-on, like... Yeah. amygdala overdrive right now you know this isn't like you can't deep breathe out of yep. it like <laughs> right like like my spouse said um so I think like that was like a big part of the trajectory and like what I was learning writing the book and what I've learned really since writing it too that like mm. a mental health crisis like will happen and like it's it can be got you know you can get through it Yes. Yes. And it did. I did feel closure. I mean, it wasn't like kittens and moonbeams and bows, but it was right. This time, this ghost is on its way and it. Right. Maybe it will come back. Maybe a different ghost will come back. But this one is has, is saying goodbye. And I, yeah. And that was validating in both ways because it was like, yeah, you can get through it. And also, let's not lie to ourselves that oh, it'll never happen again. Everything's fine. We've like totally sealed off all entrances to a ghost now. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I I feel like being realistic is a big part of it. Yeah. And also like, even though it wasn't the happiest, most closure closure, I'd like to think that like, there's the, without the ghost, there's like, the daughter and and the spouse and like the mom's a character and like yeah. of course there's still all this grief that has to be sorted through yeah and like we'll last yeah we'll just keep coming up at random moments you know um yes for a long time but like ultimately things are on an upward yes. <laughs> trajectory <laughs> yes I did and I did feel I did feel that I say feel so often 
um, which is great, which is it's it's great. This really put me in in my body in a way I had not um, experienced before in reading poems. Um, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have? I feel like your questions were very thorough, actually. <laughs> I I feel like I gave I, I talked so much about <laughs> my mental health and yeah. <laughs> other <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Other things. Yeah. No, I feel like we really covered a lot of ground here. Thank Excellent. you for your questions. Yes. Thank you so much for this collection. Um, I'm going to ask you to read by, we'll close here. If you would read um, How the Ghost Got In. How the Ghost Got In. It got in through the open window on early morning shafts of light in the morning dove's song up the copper pipes and through the floorboards, carried in particles from the radiator's steam, in my dreams, in my husband's dreams, my daughter's dreams. It came through the front door. It brought baggage and gifts, secrets and stories. It came in the light of day and under cover of night, sometimes quietly, sometimes with the clanging of backed up plumbing or the harmony of lullaby, sometimes with a chill, sometimes with a fever, it arrived and kept on arriving. Thank you. And thank you so much for naming the ghost. Um, we will make sure that readers know how they can get this um, encapsulating collection that really, truly captures what it's like to live through a nervous breakdown in a way that is relatable and just enlightening as much as it is encapsulating. Thank you so much for joining me today, Emily. Thank you.